It's Acts chapter 14, 1 to 7, for a sermon I've entitled, The Gospel Divide. This is what it says. <coughs> in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance on the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting them signs and wonders to be done by their hand. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some sided with the apostles. And when an attempt had been made by both Jew, our Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and uh, the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. You know, recently I was looking at a graph that showed the approval level of the U.S. Congress over the last two years. It wasn't very high. In the latest poll, only 13% of Americans approved of the job that Congress was doing. 87% disapproved. Now, you know how the complaint goes. It's something like this. Well, rather than solving the nation's problems, the members of Congress squabble back and forth with each party accusing the others of playing politics and holding the nation captive to their radical ideas pushed by the opposing party. Why can't we just set aside the differences and all work together for the good of the American people? But you know, the first question you should ask when you hear someone making that complaint is this. What is the good that you think we should be working towards? The answer given by a progressive Democrat would be very different than one given by a conservative Republican. Ask a progressive Democrat what she considers progress and what she would like to see America become. And she would say she wants the country to be one where all people are not only have equal opportunities, but equal outcomes. So if there's more engineers who are men than women, it must be a result of discrimination in the workforce. And so the government should step in and force companies to hire more women. If black people on average have lower wealth accumulation than white people, well then it has to be from the legacy of slavery, and the government should pay reparations to blacks today for the slavery that their ancestors had to endure. So equality and equity and compassion are the buzzwords for those on the left. And when progressives talk about freedom and rights, they're not talking about the Second Amendment, right to bear arms. Rather, they're usually talking about sexual rights. They want to remove all restraints so a person can be free to engage in any sexual activity they want to. On the other hand, if you ask a conservative Republican what he's trying to conserve, he will say that the ideal society is one where we have freedom but people have responsibilities. People need to be free from the constraint of government interference. And they need to take responsibility for their own lives. I mean, we don't want the government telling us what we can and cannot eat, what kind of cars we can drive, or the stoves that we buy. We don't want our kids being taught leftist propaganda in the school. And uh, we don't want them to be forced to call someone who's obviously a girl a boy. As the band Pink Floyd sang, hey teachers, leave those kids alone. William Gardner is a former Canadian Silver Olympic medal winner who was turned into a political thinker, has written a number of excellent books. One of them is called The Great Divide, Why Liberals and Conservatives Will Never Ever Agree. He argues that the reason they'll never agree is because they hold fundamentally different understandings of human nature. Conservatives believe that human nature is fixed and unchanging over the years. People are not born blank slates. Instead, they come in the world with a bent towards self-centeredness, greed, and a will for power, all the things that Christians call sin. So the best that we can do are find ways to restrain these evil impulses internally through religion 
or externally through government restraining those who will not restrain themselves. That's why conservatives are generally more supportive of the police than liberals are. On the other hand, liberals do not believe that human nature is fixed. Kids are born blank slates. People are the products of the environment they grow up in. Raise kids in the right environment with a good liberal education and proper government support and get rid of the right-wing patriarchy, that oppressive system, denying people the full expression of their true selves, and then all things will be well. Like the Beatles saying, you may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be one. Sure, it would be nice if the world could all be one, but it can't because the disagreements are so deep and so fundamental that there is no bridging the great divide. Now, people can be divided on a lot of things, but there is no divide that's more deep and significant than when it comes to our attitude to Jesus Christ and our response to the gospel message. For when it comes to Jesus, which side you end up on in the divide determines not only how you're going to live your life today, but where you're going to spend your eternity tomorrow. Well, here in the first few verses of chapter 14, we see the preaching of the gospel in the city of Iconium resulted in a great divide between those who accepted the good news and those who did not. Well, today we want to see how it played out. And then I want you to think about where you stand in this divide when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's pray and get into the text. <coughs> Our Father, God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Help us as we look at these things to understand them and then apply them to our lives. For we ask now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, first things we see in the text related to the gospel message. First of all, there were those who believe it, and that's in verse 1. Secondly, there are those who rejected it. That was in verse 2. The next we see a determined apostle, that's in verse 3. And finally, a divided city, and that's 4 to 7. Those who believed it. Now, after being chased out of Pisidian Antioch, Paul and Barnabas made their way down to the city of Iconium in the region of Galatia, what's today um, central Turkey. Remember that Jesus had told his disciples, if they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. And that's just what they did. So we're told in Iconium, they entered into the synagogue of the Jews together. Now here's one of the few places where I think the New International Version does a better job translating the Greek than a New American Standard. Instead of saying that Paul and Barnabas went in together, well, obviously, it actually says in the Greek, they went in as usual. The point that Luke is making here is that it was Paul's regular practice when he went into city to first find the synagogue and go to preach the gospel to the Jews. Why did he do it that way? Well, for two reasons, one practical and one theological. The practical reason is that he was speaking, when he was speaking to Jews, he was speaking to his countrymen who shared the same heritage that Paul did. I mean, police departments who work in the inner city like to hire black officers. The thought is that people, when they're dealing with others who look like themselves, are more likely to respect their work. The Daily Wire, some of you, uh, it's a conservative website and media company. Some of you listen to one or more of their podcasters. Uh, ben Shapiro, Michael Knowles, Matt Walsh, Andrew Clavin, Candace Owens. Now, they used to be based in Los Angeles, California, but several years ago, they decided to move the whole company to Nashville, Tennessee. Those who worked for the company had to sell their houses in California and relocate. Now, I think that was a pretty good move. I mean, they're moving from what some call the land of the fruits and nuts to the heart of the Bible Belt. Ben Shapiro moved as well, but he bought a house not in Nashville, but in Miami. Because he's Jewish, he wanted to live where there was a sizable Jewish population. And like most of us, he feels more at home around people like himself. 
It's not just a religious thing for him, it's a cultural thing. Well, when Paul went into the synagogues to speak to the Jews, there was a sense in which he was always coming home. These were his people who shared his religion and culture, and he had a common starting point with them, the scriptures. So it made sense that he would go to those with whom he had a bond. But you know, there's also a theological consideration. Do you remember that when Jesus sent out the disciples, he specifically told them, do not go to the Samaritans or by way of the Gentiles, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And even after he was resurrected and he gave the great commission commanding people to go into the, all of the nations, he still put a priority on Jewish evangelism. I mean, speaking of the resurrection of Jesus, Peter told his countrymen in Jerusalem that it was for you first that God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you, turning every one, every one of you from his wicked ways. Acts 3.26. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. I've heard Jewish people complain that it's, they say, you know, it seems like you evangelical Christians specifically target us for evangelism. Well, yeah, and we're supposed to, because Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who came to and came through the nation of Israel. It says, in Iconium they entered into the synagogue of the Jews as usual and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. Now, the last time Paul spoke in a uh, synagogue, there were many Greeks who believed, but only a few Jews. But this time it was more encouraging because it says a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But notice that Luke takes note of how they preach the message. You know, the gospel itself is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, but it still matters how it's presented. I mean, two mistakes that the church and pastors in particular make when it comes to preaching. First is to think that it all depends on them, and so it doesn't really, and the second is to think that it doesn't really matter how you present the message. So those who fall into that first mistake, they think that uh, it's all about the process of communication. So what you need is a polished speaker who has a, a message with style and verve. And it helps, of course, if you have a PowerPoint presentation interspersed with some funny video clips. But Paul specifically repudiated using the tricks of the trade that the, uh, the Greek speakers used at that time. Writing to the Corinthians, he said this, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech and wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I also was with you in weakness and fear and great trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, meaning the world's wisdom, <coughs> but in a demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God, 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. So Paul didn't employ the rhetorical methods used by the orators and the debaters of his day. He simply proclaimed the gospel truth carefully, counting on the power inherent in the message to change hearts and to transform lives. But that doesn't mean he didn't preach with skill and passion. Good preaching requires sermon preparation, lots of prayer, and then powerful proclamation. You ever listen to a sermon? where the pastor's asking you to believe something and you're not quite sure that he really believes it himself? I mean, if he doesn't believe what he's saying, why should you believe what he's saying? I mean, if he doesn't have a flame in the pulpit, how is there even going to be a spark in the pew? David Hume was a skeptic. He liked to go listen to George Whitfield, who was a great preacher. And they asked him one time, I thought you were an atheist. Why would you go listen to a Christian preacher? He said, no, I don't believe in Jesus, but he does, and I like to go watch him. You know, they say if you're on fire for the Lord, at least a few people will come and watch you burn. 
Well, they talked about preaching with passion and conviction. But where does that come from? The person preaches with compassion and conviction. It comes from two things. First of all, being convinced of the truth of what you're saying. And secondly, being convinced of the importance of what you're saying. If you were a steward on the Titanic and you knew that the ship had hit an iceberg and there was a big gash along the side and that it was going to sink, how passionate would you be as you pled with the people on the ship to get to the life rafts? But I want to tell you something. What's at stake when a pastor preaches the gospel or you witness to your family members is of greater importance than whether a ship sinks. Because you'll lose not only your life, you'll lose your soul. Well, Paul knew what was at stake, and that's why he spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. And praise God, there were those who believed the gospel, but notice also there were those who rejected it, and that's our second point. You know, whenever or, what, whenever or wherever you, the gospel is preached, while we hope that it will be believed by some, we know that it will be rejected by many. Some because they don't believe it's true, and others because they have a sneaking suspicion that it is true, but they don't want to face the truth. John puts it this way in his gospel, in chapter 3, 19 to 20. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. For everyone who loves evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Now when you think that uh, you would think that people, if they didn't believe the gospel message, they'd just simply shrug their shoulders and walk away. But you know, the Word of God has a piercing effect even on those who reject the truth. So rather than walk away, a lot of times they become enraged, not content to reject the truth for themselves. They want to keep others from hearing it and accepting the message. And that happened here because look what it says. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. I'm going to tell you, my experience is not the drunk sitting in the bars, but the hypocrites sitting in the pews who become the most bitter enemies of the gospel. Jonathan Edwards was used greatly by God in the first great awakening in this country. The people who opposed him the most were the liberal clergy of New England. His own church fired him after many years of faithful service. You see, if a person is a professed believer in Jesus, but in fact they're unconverted, what they're counting on is their own righteousness not the righteousness of Christ. And so when the convicting work of the Spirit comes through the preaching of the gospel, and that person is stripped bare of those fig leaves of self-righteousness that they've clothed themselves in, they're left naked and exposed. But rather than turn to Christ who would cover their sin and shame, they rage at the person who brings that conviction. Well, the awakened, convicted sinner can either repent or rage. And if he rages, he can either attack the messenger physically or verbally. And here the Jews in the synagogue in Iconium did both. It says they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Now one of the commentators I read imagined a scene where you would have a Gentile woman who perhaps had gone to the synagogue and heard Paul and responded to the preaching. And so she goes back a couple of times and her husband doesn't know what this is all about. So he asks his Jewish neighbor about this, this Rabbi Paul. And so, oh, you got to get your wife away from that man. Uh, he's a false prophet and a religious fanatic who's telling this absurd story about this man named Jesus who claimed to be God and that, oh, he died on a cross and then rose from the dead three days later. Our rabbis tell us this man is dangerous. He should be avoided at all costs. I'd suggest you tell your wife in no uncertain terms that you will not tolerate her continuing to follow this man. 
Proverbs 18, 17 says this, any story sounds true until someone tells the other side and sets the record straight. The problem is that when you face slander for bringing the gospel, you often never get the chance to set the record straight. Your accusers poison the well. And who's going to drink from a well that they think is poisoned? Now sometimes the opposition we face comes from family members and co-workers. Other times it's driven by leaders of other religions, like in Islamic countries. Sometimes it's nationwide instituted by the government, like in China. But whenever or wherever it comes, it's always for the same reason. Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, for this reason the world hates you. Remember the words that I said to you? A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they've both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that was written in their law, that they hated me without a cause. They hate us because they hate Jesus. And they hate Jesus because they hate God. That's why they oppose the spread of the gospel. That brings us to our third point, though, a determined apostle. I mean, how much does it take to discourage you? I mean, how, how easily do you give up on a, a project when things don't go right? You know, some people, the slightest difficulty or the simplest setback, and they think, ah, forget it, this is just too much trouble. My wife recently watched a documentary about Yogi Bear. By the way, that's where they get the Yogi Bear com, uh, cartoon. He was a one-time New York Yankees catcher and later the team's manager. But as famous as he was for that, he's remembered more for his memorable quips and aphorisms like, it ain't over till it's over. Or the future ain't what it used to be. Or it, once, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I've had a couple of those. <laughs> a lot of the things that are attributed to him, he said he never said. Uh, but they sounded good, so it gets chalked up to him. Now, it was true also for Winston Churchill. One of the quotes attributed to him that he never said was this, you have enemies? Good, it means you stood up for something somewhere in your life. Another that he did say was this, this is the lesson, never give in. Never, never, never. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except for honor and for good sense. Never yield to a force, never yield to apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Now Paul embodied that advice in his ministry. When he was facing opposition and slander in Iconium, we read this in verse 3. Therefore, get this, because he was facing this, therefore, he spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance on the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders might be done by his hands. Paul could have sung the songs of the Tom Petty song. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. Gonna stand my ground. Won't be turned around, and I'll keep this world from dragging me down, because I'll stand my ground, and I won't back down. You know, when the crisis comes, a lot of so-called Christian leaders do back down. They cave in, and they crumble. They put their tails between their legs, and they run away yelping. In his analogy of the Good Shepherd, Jesus said that the hireling who's not really the owner of the sheep, 
when he sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. There were plenty of pastors when the politicians demanded that the churches shut down for COVID, dutifully complied. Some churches were closed for over a year. Some churches, church leaders, to avoid criticism, softened their stance on the biblical standards of sexuality, including prohibitions on homosexuality. In a sermon on this topic, one top leader of a large denomination said this, We ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about and shout about what the Bible shouts about. The Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sins compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. The Bible certainly shouts about materialism and religious pride, but can we really say that it only whispers about sexual sins? Has he never read the Bible? No, that's not the problem. He's just caving into the culture. Some pastors become, uh, because of fear of backlash, never weigh in on the hot-button issues of our day. Martin Luther was right when he said this. Listen to what he said. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition of every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point where the world and the devil at the moment are uh, attacking, then I'm not conf- I may be confessing Christ, but I'm not pro- I'm, I may be professing Christ, but I'm not confessing him. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. To be steady in all the battlefields besides is to mere, is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at the point. Now, do you understand what he's saying? He's saying this, to stand up boldly for the things that everyone agrees with, like do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, that takes no courage. But to insist on, for instance, biblical morality, or that Jesus is the only way to God and all other ways lead to hell, well, that brings scorn from the world. But it's at that very point that you show yourself to be a loyal soldier of Christ. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul was committed to proclaiming the gospel truth to everyone and anyone, whether they wanted to hear it or not. Paul was a determined man. But while he was a determined apostle, it produced a divided city. Look what it says in 4 to 7. Starting in verse 4, it says, But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some sided with the apostles. Now, before Paul came to Iconium, the people were divided between Jews and Gentiles. But then he preached the gospel and the city was divided again, this time not between Jews and Gentiles, but between Jews and Gentiles who believed and Jews and Gentiles who didn't believe. Notice how each side could get along with the other on the issue of Jesus. You know, liberal churches, they used to have this rallying cry, doctrine divides, but ministry unites. In other words, if the churches would just downplay their doctrinal differences, they could all come together to engage in Christian ministry. But the ministry of the church is to proclaim the doctrines of the Bible. Jesus is the Son of God incarnate, who lived a perfect life of obedience, who then offered up that life as a sacrifice for sins, and then three days later was raised from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted. In so doing, he not only paid for the sins of his people, but he also conquered death for them. Now, how many doctrines are involved in those statements I just made? And we should minimize them? That's ridiculous. Well... We can't have minor differences, but in the essentials, we have to be together for the gospel. And the truth of the matter is, if we're all on the same page, it'll be because we're on the pages of the Bible. Well, sadly, a lot of times the bad guys are more committed to oppose the gospel than Christ's followers are to proclaiming the gospel. I don't think there was anyone in Iconium more committed than Paul was, but they were still committed to shutting down his witness. Look what it says in verse 5. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, 
They became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, the ex-Beatle, Paul McCartney, wrote a song entitled, Band on the Run. Well, Paul and Barnabas were a two-man band on the run. The dynamic duo might have been run out of town, but they haven't run out of cities to preach the gospel at, because, you know, whatever the audience thinks, the show must go on. Years later, Paul was sitting in prison facing the end of his life. He wrote to Timothy, looking back at his days when he was in this area, he said this, Now you follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, and faith. Patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering such as happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 12. It takes courage for a Christian to stand for the truth in the gospel. Some have had to pay with their lives for that witness. All have to pay the price of being rejected and ridiculed by unbelieving relatives and friends. doesn't matter how winsome you are, how gently you present the truth. The cold hard fact is that unbelievers are on one side of this great divide and Christians on the, are on the other. And if you're a Christian, your goal is to bring them from that side of the divide over to our side. Well, I want to apply this sermon to three types of people here and to those who are going to be listening over the internet and the radio. First, if you're a Christian, a committed Christian, I want to commend you and encourage you to keep fighting the good fight. I know it's long, it's hard, it's disappointing. It seems for every step forward, sometimes there's two backwards. But there's a prize and a crown at the end for those who persevere. So just keep going. Double down your efforts. Pastor, I listened to speak at a conference one time. He said, you know, 20 years ago, he said, I was at a conference where they were speaking to pastors and encouraging them. And so one of the things the guy did was he handed everybody an envelope. And he said, here's an envelope, but I want you to swear to the Lord that you will not open this envelope until the day comes when you've decided you're going to quit the ministry. And so he put it away in his Bible, put it on the shelf. Well, the years went by and he was struggling in his church. Rejection of the gospel, people causing trouble, all kinds of issues. And he decided, that was it, I'm done. I'm going to put in my notice and tell him I'm through. Then he remembered the little envelope and he opened it up. It had a piece of paper in it and it only had two words written on it. Don't quit. And he didn't. Don't quit. If you know you're not a Christian, this is a second application. I'm calling on you to abandon your position, surrender to Jesus, and enlist in his army. Because this is the winning side. And you want to be on it. The third application I want to make to those of you who are professed Christians but really lack real commitment. I want to ask you one simple question. Which side are you on? The great divide is deep, decisive, and which side you're on is going to determine your eternal destiny. You've got to come to grips with this. You've got to make up your mind. Because if you hesitate too long, the decision will already have been made. May God give you the grace. May God open your eyes and your heart. Let's pray.
Oh, Father and God, we need grace and mercy. Um, we know that the scripture teaches that all the elect make it, those you've chosen for salvation, will make it in the end. They will persevere because you preserve them. But that means we have to do the things that you call us to do in order to persevere. We need to hear the word of God. We need to be in a place where people are encouraging us to keep going. We need to pray often and ask for help. We need to say no to sin. And we need to stand for the truth wherever you've placed us. And that's becoming more difficult, but that just shows what the quality of a person's faith is when the difficult times come. So we pray that you'd strengthen our faith, cause us to persevere, and cause us to find great joy in serving Jesus now and forevermore. So bless us to that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to close by singing a song. It's going to be 337.